بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله الحمد لله we have three more sessions we have this session and then we have another session and then we have a concluding session and that doesn't include coming together for a comprehensive review an open forum to just go over issues that we can settle set a date for that but we have three more classes and so far in module 11 we've been covering just miscellaneous issues and one of the things i mentioned very early on when we introduced the topic of fardain knowledge uh, we we gave an outline looking at what is fardain to know just you know the basic things so we talked about belief and ritual worship and halal and haram and transactions and all these matters of the heart and so on and then at the end i said that there are some things that are fardain for some people but not for others or they are fardain for people in a certain day and age because of the challenges they're facing what they're confronted with but it would not have ever been fardain for people in a previous generation who were not confronted with that challenge you know there are certain things that present themselves in different time periods and they're so pervasive they're so widespread that you have to know the proper way of understanding them and uh, responding to them and tonight's topic is one of those and the, the fuqaha they they have this term they call it you know things that become super widespread to the point that they're unavoidable and so tonight we're going to discuss something that has nothing whatsoever to do with fardain in an ideal world but because we are living in the modern world uh, the postmodern world, the, the, the world of scientism and materialism and reductionist beliefs in the material, we have to talk about this. And that is evolution. Evolution. We have to talk about this. And the reason why it's Fardain for us to talk about it or at least know what is acceptable from it and what is not acceptable is because it is now taught worldwide in such a way taught as an absolute fact taught as a matter of yaqeen of certainty and is taught in such a way that it actually undermines certain core islamic beliefs and because of that its pervasiveness and the fact that people are going to encounter it a person must know what are the correct positions, position in the singular, or positions? What are some of the acceptable views we could take towards the issue of evolution? What are positions we cannot take towards evolution that would actually be detrimental to our faith? So we have to explore this, inshallah, to see what we could retain, what we must discard, or should we just throw the whole thing in the garbage bin? Right? There's different approaches here. 
Now, I want to preface this by saying that I'm not a scientist, nor do I play one on television. So that's not my specialty. But that is not a problem. That is not a barrier to discussing the issue of evolution, because we are looking at what of evolution would conflict with our core beliefs. So you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be, have absolute mastery of evolution and the fossil record and the DNA sequences and all of this stuff. You don't have to be an expert in any of that stuff because even if you know all of that stuff, it's still in the realm of the physical. It's still in the realm of the material. And science itself is talking about or is applied to the lowest order of creation. And that is the madda, the material, the created world. So in the hierarchy of being, the lowest rung on the ladder is the physical, the dense, the kathif. And beyond that are more subtle things. So science can only operate in the domain of the physical. It can only operate in the domain of the ada. We talked about the hukum adi, remember? The empirical judgment, observation and repetition, observing patterns in nature. That's science, really. So science can only answer things in the realm of cause and effect in the natural world. Science only applies to that. Science cannot answer metaphysical questions about why these things are the way they are. Science cannot answer moral questions about what is good and what is evil. Science cannot address metaphysical questions about what is beauty and what is ugliness and what is truth. It can only answer questions that pertain to its own domain, properly speaking. That's the physical. So if, the, if science, which pertains to the physical world, is used to develop theories that contradict the higher order, the higher realm of metaphysics, of beliefs about the unseen, then we reject it simply because it can't address those kinds of questions because it's very limited in its scope. So you don't have to know science and be an expert to say, I reject this and I reject that because it contradicts core Islamic beliefs. But there is some nuance to this. Right? how we approach the matter of evolution. So with that uh, disclaimer out of the way, let's look at this. Now, evolution as a scientific theory viewed by scientists consists of three core concepts. Number one, deep time. Number two, common ancestry. And number three, causal mechanics. So just as a refresher, what these three things mean, the deep time means that evolution took a very, very long time. So there was a very long period of millions and millions, even billions of years for evolution to begin. It didn't just start like that. That's the notion of deep time. Common ancestry in the theory of evolution tells us that all living entities go back to a common ancestor. And 
The third part of the theory of evolution is causal mechanics, which says, this describes the how of these common ancestors, how the common ancestors evolved into different species over that deep time. So neo-Darwinism, which is the dominant version of this theory today, says that A, random mutations, and B, natural selection, are the driving forces of this process. So this is important to understand because knowing what random means impacts our judgment on evolution. And understanding what natural selection means impacts our judgment on evolution. They say these are the two main driving forces behind the evolution. So going into these two a little bit, I don't want to make this a science class. Just get these things out of the way and then we apply it. We apply our judgment to it. Random mutations. What do, we, what do they mean by that? Mutations in the gene which cause the variation in the species. So they say that when a gene mutates over billions of years, after being passed down generation after generation, that leads to a variation in the species. You've seen those squirrels. Okay, if, you've, if you go to the south, you have brown squirrels. If you go up north, further north, I think past the Mason-Dixon line in Maryland, you have black squirrels. And then some parts you have flying squirrels. They don't literally fly, but they jump out of their trees and they have these little pads that can kind of glide a little bit. So you have these variations in the species. And there's various reasons discussed in the scientific literature about why those mutations occur. They say things like exposure to radiation, exposure to chemicals. They say copying errors from one generation to the next in the DNA. Uh, and these changes could be big or small. Could be changes that result in a change of color or a change of shape and so on and so forth. But that is ran random mutations, right? It's just random, it's just accidental, right? The second aspect is natural selection. This is the big one. And this is the idea of environmental factors that play a part in deciding which animals remain and which ones are going to die out. And in the scientific literature, the simple example they give is giraffes, right? Because you have giraffes, you'll find that those that have shorter necks, if they're not able to reach the tall trees, then what's going to happen is they are going to die out because they're lacking resources. Whereas those who have longer necks will survive and they will procreate and they will perpetuate the species because they are able to access the resources. So as the ones with the shorter necks die out because of inability to access the trees, the higher trees, and the taller ones survive and pass on their genes, the idea here is that those with longer necks have a higher chance of surviving. Therefore, they will, over time, pass on their genes to their children, and you're not going to see the giraffes with the short necks anymore. They'll all have long necks. This is what they call survival of the fittest. That's what it means. So this is the idea. Now, in terms of whether we believe that or not, you know, do we come from monkeys or not? You know, that's, that's really, that's a crude way of putting it because the scientific language is not that crude. But we do have to ask this question. Do we believe in evolution? And if we do, to what extent? And how do we reconcile that belief with the creation of Adam, alayhi salam, and his wife, Hawa? 
So we want to look at this from the Quranic perspective first at the creation of Adam and, and then look at whether evolution can coincide with that belief or whether it contradicts belief in the creation of Adam or the unique creation of Adam. When you look in the Quran, you find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions time and time again that Adam alayhi salam is a special creation, a special creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala where he says, خَلَقْتُ uh, The one I created with my two hands. Now that's not an anthropomorphic meaning as a person might imagine with two limbs. But this is a meaning of, of ikhtisas, special attention, inaya, solicitude and care, meaning a special creation endowed with special things uh, outside of any other process, a special creation. We have the other verse where Allah Ta'ala says, uh, I proportioned him, so waituhu, and I blew into him from my spirit. So there's the idea of a, him being a special creation. We have in Surah An-Nisa, Allah addresses all of humanity and says, O mankind, be vigilant of your Lord who created you, min nafsin wahida. From a single soul, and from that single soul created his mate, his spouse. And from the two of them, he calls to emerge abundant offspring, men and women. So this means that we are descendants of Adam, who was a special creation. His creation is not like the creation of animals. His creation is not like the creation of reptiles, amphibians, mammals, uh, anything else. It is a special kind of creation with a special attention outside of any process that a person might observe. So it is special in that way. Uh, likewise, Allah Ta'ala mentions in the Hujurat, O mankind, we created you from a single male and female and made you into nations and tribes that you may know one another. This is a common meaning repeated throughout the Qur'an, speaking about the special creation of Adam and Eve, alayhi salam. And we see the same thing in the hadith. The hadith of the Prophet also mention the special nature of Adam's creation. The Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith recorded by Imam Muslim that angels were created from light and jinn were created from fire or smokeless flame. And Adam was created from that which you have been told. What have we been told? What's in the Quran? Right? And in a very beautiful hadith, a hadith I really love, a hadith recorded by Abu Dawood. The Prophet ﷺ says that Allah created Adam from a handful which he took from the whole of the earth. So the children of Adam are in accordance with the earth. Some red, some white, some black, some a mixture, also smooth and rough, bad and good. Meaning, the physical makeup of Adam as a special creation as one created from Turab or Teen, it wasn't just a single portion of clay from the earth, it was from 
a variety of locations and qualities, all mixed together in a special creation. And because of that, within him, in potentia, he had within him, in his genetic line, you could say, all of the different colors, as well as the different natures, because you have clay that is red. You have clay that is white. We have that in Georgia, by the way. We also have red clay. You have clay that is black, that is dark. You have clay that is a mixture of these. Some clay is very brittle and hard, or, or hard. Some clay is very soft and pliable. And that reflects also in the temperaments and character of the people who are descendants of Adam. Some people are very easygoing. They're very, they're very agreeable people. Then you have people who are very disagreeable and rough around the edges. That's a reflection of the, the nature, right? So this tells you that there's Adam's a special creation outside of any process. So what we come to is the way Muslims have tried to reconcile belief in evolution as it stands with the belief in the unique creation of Adam and his descendants. Or not even reconciling them, just choosing one over the other. Right? So there's a variety of positions in the Muslim world. There's about four positions, but the fourth one is very, is very fringe, so I didn't bring it up. The three main positions we have are here in this slide. When you look at the positions on evolution in the Muslim world, historically, as the theories of Darwin were translated into Arabic and other languages spoken by Muslims, as the ideas developed later and were pushed through the education system, you have three positions among the Muslims. Position number one is no exceptions, meaning evolution applies to everyone and everything, every created thing, every uh, living thing, even Adam and Eve. The second one is creationism, which is saying, no, evolution's just garbage, throw it out, bottle, it's fake. And then number three, you have human exceptionalism, which is basically affirming evolution as a possibility, as a kind of sabab or means uh, in which Allah created things. But Adam السلام, and his wife and our, his descendants are outside of that process. So humans are an exception to evolution as such. So let's look at these. Uh, the first position accepts evolution wholeheartedly as a matter of fact for all living organisms including human beings and including Adam and Eve and the people who embrace evolution like this they basically reinterpret all of the verses in the Quran that speak about Adam and Eve as a special a special creation and they say that it's all metaphorical it's not literal it's not real it's just it's a figure of speech it's majaz they say this so this is a position that is held by people who tend to be uh, materialist, people who reject belief in the miracles, who reject belief in certain unseen things like the jinn. They'll say jinn are microbes or germs or whatever. They're very, ra they're very extreme rationalist. You know, things that don't make sense to them, they just think are not possible. 
And they don't believe, therefore, that Adam is actually a unique creation of Allah Ta'ala. They believe that he, like every other organism, came about through a process of evolution. And the implication of that belief is that, I mean, you, you, could, you could say that it, the implication is that Adam descended from primates. That is a position. Now, where does that position stand in light of our theology? This position is invalid. It is not permissible for a Muslim to believe that. To, to deny the special creation of Adam السلام, as Allah explicitly stated in the Quran, that is invalid. So that position in E, no exceptions, is batil. Now the second position is creationism. And you know, you're in America, so this has... This is received in open arms by a large part of the, of the nation. And I myself, I'm very sympathetic to it. And the idea of creationism is it just rejects the theory of evolution in totality. And they believe that Allah created things as they are without a process of evolution. But we have to be fair to the creationists because the creationists who reject evolution, they're not rejecting uh, micro-evolution, you know, micro-changes over long time. What they're rejecting is macro-evolution. So micro-evolution is basically this evolutionary change on a small scale, such as evolution or selection occurring on a single gene or a few genes in a single population over a short period of time. We can observe that. We can observe that. That micro-evolution, no one has a problem affirming that. But the human remains a human through that process. You see? It's not the monkey becomes a human. Right? So that microevolution, no one has an issue affirming that. Creationists affirm that. What they reject is macroevolution, which is evolution. Right? The actual meaning that we're using here. This position that uh, evolution is batil, and that everything is created by Allah as it is without a process of evolution. Theologically speaking, that's an absolutely valid position. Because what does it do? It upholds the belief in the special creation of Adam. That he is a, a unique and special creation outside of any kind of process. So they're upholding the, the literal reading of the verses that speak about the creation of Adam. So they're maintaining the asl, the default. The, the foundation. So there's, theologically, they are in safe water. So if a person wants to embrace that, they can. Uh, but then we come to the third position, which I think is what the majority of Muslims who get involved in science should probably consider in this discussion. And that is human exceptionalism. So human exceptionalism is, it believes that evolution can be accepted on the surface, except for human beings. Human beings are outside of that process. They say that the verses of the Qur'an and the Hadith, which speak about the creation of human beings, this, these verses speak about a unique creation, and Adam and Hawa are a miraculous creation outside of any kind of evolutionary process. So if they want to affirm evolution for primates, or other organisms, that's fine. As a, as a rational possibility, sure. 
because that's not contradicting anything explicit in the Quran. But they accept, they take Adam and Eve out of that because if they don't, that becomes a contradiction. That becomes a denial of the special creation of Adam and Eve mentioned in the Quran. So this is a theologically valid position. If you want to believe that, that's, that's fine because logically speaking, the idea that this comes from that, you know, the mind can conceive of it. Even though I, I do believe there are some metaphysical problems with it, but the mind could conceive of it. It's not a contradiction of the Quran as such. So, having reviewed these three positions, two of them are acceptable, one of them is rejected. The belief that evolution applies to everything, including Adam and Eve, that's rejected. The, the rejection of evolution in total, that's fine. You're not breaking any rule. You're not doing anything wrong. Or accepting human exceptionalism, that's also valid. So when it comes to these topics, uh, it's important to bring things back to fundamentals, bring things back to our core principles, to understand these side discussions in light of principles. So there is a legal maxim, a qa'ida fiqhiyya, which states, al-yaqeen la yazulu bishak. Certainty is not removed by doubt. Certainty is not removed by doubt. So what that means is if you have certainty about something, that certainty is not going to be removed by something that comes up that's just questionable or doubtful. The only way you can remove one certainty, something you're certain in, is if something else that is certain presents itself, which is more compelling, and so you trade one certainty for another, right? Or you come to doubt this, given something else that has certainty. So if a person is certain about something, but then they have a doubt, that doubt can't just be based on wahm or theory or ideas that may or may not be true. It has to be something clear-cut and certain. So if you apply that to the issue of evolution, we have absolute certainty from the Qur'an that Adam and Eve are special creations of Allah, as their offspring is too. That's where our yaqeen is. So, if anything comes presenting doubt, the principle says, Al-Yaqeen la yazuru bishak. Certainty is not removed by doubt. So our certainty in the special creation of Adam and Eve and their offspring is not going to be removed by a theory such as the theory of evolution, which posits that Adam and Eve, human beings, uh, descend from primates and, you know, Suborganisms. So there's no reason to discount our certainty just because of social pressure. Social pressure, pressure to fit in with a theory. We have to be brave, right? Now, I want to give you a couple of theological summaries to show you possible consequences. If you look at the creation of human beings, we see that we, we go through a process when the, uh, the sperm and the egg come together. You have this development of the fetus. 
and it goes through multiple stages and the fetus grows and then you have this child in the womb, then the child is born and then the child goes through infancy and then the toddler years and then it grows up. So you see a process of change within the human being. So if you look at just the idea of, of a change, the idea of a process, the scholars would say that, okay, rationally speaking, rationally speaking, it's possible for Allah Ta'ala to create humans through an evolutionary process which He shapes at every stage. So the idea here is, is it rationally conceivable that we descended from primates? The mind can conceive of it, so it's not the same thing as a square circle. The mind can conceive of it, so it's, we, we say that this is is aqli, right? It's rationally possible. However, it is actually mustahil, it's rationally impossible, but not of the typical variety, the typical meaning. We mean mustahil aradi, meaning it is extrinsically impossible. It's impossible, why? Not because it's impossible in and of itself. It's possible. But what makes it impossible is because Allah informed us that Adam and Eve have not been created through that kind of process. And because Allah speaks the truth, that means that it's impossible, not but it's extrinsically impossible because Allah informed us otherwise. So Allah created Adam in Jannah, not in earth. He created him in a particular way. And he described this to us in the Quran. So it's not conceivable based on that, that Adam could have gone through a process of evolution. Now, when you look at evolution and the impact belief in it could have on us as Muslims, some of the scholars say that where you get into the dangerous territory is in the issue of random mutation and natural selection. They say that there are two premises in evolution, random selection and a random mutation and natural selection, which could potentially be kufr if you believe in it in a certain way. Potentially, depending on how you embrace it. So, how would that work? We believe that Allah Ta'ala alone is Rabbul Alameen. He is the master of existence. And He and He alone causes all that there is to be and not to be. The creator of everything. Allah has power over all things. Right? To ascribe ta'thir, ta'thir means efficacy, you know, basically independent power, right? To ascribe efficacy to anything but Allah's action, whether believing that causes bring about the effects in and of themselves, bidatiha, or, or to believe that those causes and effects bring about effects through a kind of power Allah deposited or placed within them, kind of making them autonomous, doing their own thing. This is a kind of ishraq. It's a kind of association. Because if you say that, for example, water quenches thirst independently of Allah, it creates the quenching independently of Allah, you are affirming a creator besides Allah. 
right, in the realm of cause and effect. So that would be shirk. If you say, la, no, we don't say that water independently quench, uh, creates quenching within the person, but rather it is Allah who, who gives it, who confers upon it an independent power, a kind of autonomy to operate you know, within certain limits. And so it acts independently, but only after Allah has given it power. This is also problematic. It's not necessarily kufr, but it's problematic. Uh, according to Mama Sanusi, yeah, he mentions that there's two positions. The soundest position, the, it is, uh, it's heretical, but it's not something that takes you outside of Islam. So these kinds of beliefs are actually, they seem to be implied when you talk about natural selection and random mutation. And the only way you can work out of, get out of that is if you understand random mutation and natural selection uh, as figurative terms while saying that Allah is the agent. So you say, oh, it's random mutation, but in those stages of mutation in deep time going across billions of years, it's actually Allah creating it in that time frame directly. It's not random as if it operates independently on its own. Right? It's Allah doing it, but within the confines of time in this kind of process, these are just the observable asbab for it. Right? If you say it like that, you escape the problem. But if you say that random as if it's independent and doing its own thing, independent of Allah, that's a problem. Right? As for the claim that man has evolved from non-human species, ulama will say that this is kufr. Why? It doesn't matter if you say that man evolved from a non-human species and Allah was the one directing it from the very beginning. So it's not random. It doesn't matter if you ascribe it to Allah or describe it to quote-unquote natural processes. It doesn't matter because what's happening is you're negating the truth of Allah's words when he mentions Adam's special creation. That is takdeeb, right? So the verses describe the creation of Adam as special. And a person says, no, it's not special. Because Adam, like everything else, was created in this process of evolution. So he's actually not special. So that becomes a denial of the Quran. So if a person affirms Adam and Eve evolving like every other organism, evolving from a lower organism, they're just denying the Qur'an, right? Now, this doesn't mean that a person who espouses his belief in evolution is automatically outside of Islam. As we said before, a person may have doubts, they may misunderstand things, they may, not, they may say something and not really know what they're saying. And to clarify and show that you could affirm some aspects of this, but you have to be very mindful of your language and what you say. As long as you affirm the special creation of Adam and that there's no random mutation that is operating independently of Allah, then you could affirm, affirm a kind of evolution with human exceptionalism. And that would be theologically valid, even if others may not agree with you and they go for creationism, right? Still valid. Um, and as I said in the beginning, science can only describe the physical. And one of the great tragedies of the modern world is that the word science itself has been uh, inverted. Its meaning has been inverted because in the classical meaning of science, it meant 
the knowledge of God in ultimate reality. Right? But then, you know, with the Renaissance and the modern period, you have science being used to describe the physical, which is the lowest level, right? So science can only describe the physical, can only describe the measurable, what we have access to through the senses. It cannot operate beyond this limited domain. Science cannot answer metaphysical questions. It cannot say whether Adam or, uh, was or was not a special creation outside of the process of evolution. It is the lowest order of knowledge, right? The highest science is knowledge of God, being, metaphysics, and so on, right? So we have to get our priorities straight. So this means that science cannot address metaphysical questions. It cannot address questions of the unseen. It can only address questions of alam al-shahada, the witnessed world. It can't answer questions about alam al-ghayb, the world of the unseen. It can't answer metaphysical questions or moral questions or ethical questions. It can't tell you what is good. It can't tell you what is beautiful. It can't tell you what is moral and upright. It can't tell you what happiness is. Although they try to, because they try to reduce everything to the chemical, to the, to the material. And subhanAllah, uh, and this is, this is a whole sub-genre of, 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 of discourse, you know, the idea of scientism, where a science becomes its own religion that has replaced the priest in the robes, and the, now it has new priests in new robes, and that's the lab coat. So there's a whole discourse about that. Now, you have René Guénon, Sheikh Abdul Wahid Yahya, who's a, a great French uh, philosopher, metaphysician, and thinker. Uh, he became Muslim, uh, migrated to Egypt, and got married there and died there. He left France. Um, he wrote a lot of books before he became Muslim. Very good. It has some good things, some bad things. But he has a book called The Reign of Quantity. The Reign of Quantity is a very difficult book to read. It's a very dense book. But this book, The Reign of Quantity, and the, the idea that uh, quantity, al-kamiya, is the reigning ideology of the modern world. Right, so that's scientism, not science, scientism. The idea that science can answer every question, including metaphysics, including morals and ethics. The, reducing, the, re, the, re, the reduction of every value to what is measurable. And what's so interesting about his book, I'm going on a tangent here, he said that this reign of quantity affects people of religion just as much as it affects quote-unquote materialists. He's basically telling us, don't think of materialism as a person chasing after a nice car or like an, a nice Rolex watch. That is a kind of materialism, perhaps. He says, no, he says materialism, the true materialism, is the idea that if you can't measure it, it's not real. If you can't grasp it with your senses, it's not real. If you can't reduce it and put it under a microscope, if you can't dissect it, it's not real. If you can't quantify it, it's not real. He says that this, this ideology also affects people in, who are quote-unquote religious. And this is unrelated to the topic of evolution, but it came to my mind. He says that the way 
this reign of quantity or materialism takes hold of quote-unquote religious people is that religious people under its spell, they, their, their, their morality is reduced to what is measurable as well. So it's, own, it's reduced to just the outward trappings and it doesn't look at character and spiritual qualities, internal qualities. It's only about the way the person looks, how long their thobe is, how opaque their jilbab is, how long their beard is. Not that these things aren't important, by the way. But he's just saying that when it's reduced to the material, it's reduced to what is observable, and it just becomes religion as do's and don'ts. Stripped of the, the, the ethical, stripped of the moral, the character, the spirituality. So that's important. Now, uh, there were a few things I wanted to mention at the end of this, after mentioning the three positions, two of which are acceptable, one of which is not, and where the belief in evolution could potentially be kufr. Let's look at some of the problems with evolution uh, on a bigger scale. It's true, some scholars say that, yes, okay, uh, the idea that a man, man could evolve from primates the mind can conceive of it as possible. But we would still say that it's metaphysically problematic. Um, now I'll give you a few reasons. One of the problems with evolution, uh, metaphysically speaking, is that the greater cannot come from the lesser. Do we have oak trees out here? Are these oak trees? Who knows what the, that big tree is? Okay, let's say it's an oak tree. Where does the oak tree come from? It comes from an acorn, right? The greater cannot come from the lesser. That doesn't mean that the oak tree can't come from an acorn. Because the acorn is precisely already an oak tree, but in a different form. It's in its, you know, earliest stage. But it grows and develops. It's already, it already has within it the essence of what it is to become, and it just grows larger and develops. The greater does not come from the lesser, right? The human being does not come from a chemical cocktail, uh, you know, and just some electromagnetic charges and amoebas and all of this, and then it becomes some fish creature for billions of years, and then one day it just decides to grow legs and walk on the earth. That's not how we come about. The greater doesn't come from the lesser like that. Another problem with evolution is physical entropy because you have the second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy that in complexity tends towards deg degradation, right? Systems will move gradually to greater degrees of quote-unquote randomness, meaning things break down, they don't break up, right? If you leave a car in your garage for years upon years, it doesn't stay the same as it was when you first got it, right? Things break down. That's the law of entropy. So what this means is that things, the material, they proceed from a state of order to disorder. That's the law of entropy. They go from a state of order to disorder. They don't go from disorder to order unless there is some out some outside input of information, intelligence, that is creating that development right, from the outside. 
So nothing goes against that law in creation except the evolution hypothesis. The idea that human beings in creation, we came from disorder to order without an outside input of intelligence making it so. So it just doesn't make sense, right? There's also another argument, the teleological argument, which is the argument from design. And that argument says that it is impossible that something that is blind, deaf, and dumb, you know, evolution is not a thing, right? It's a hypothesis. Something like evolution is not described with sight or hearing or speech, right? Something like that doesn't have these qualities. So the idea that evolution could give rise to eyes and ears and voices is untenable, right? Consciousness does not rise from a heap of pebbles, right? So the argument from design is also a potential argument against evolution, right? And then lastly, and these are just one of, these are some of several arguments against evolution. One is relativism, right? Because this perspective, this evolution hypothesis is actually a very relative argument. Because, well, the argument is that human beings have evolved from lower organisms. But as that statement is made, it's as if the person is saying it, the person saying it has stepped out of the process. It's as if they stepped out of the evolutionary process and they're making that statement back projecting their own origins, right? You don't just get to step out of your own evolutionary process, right? You can't step out of it, take this stationary position, and then start making absolute statements about a process that you say is continuing. And the very tools by which you make absolute statements, your intellect, you say comes from evolution. So it's conceivable that as man evolves further, billions of years from now, they'll come to different conclusions. You understand? So that's the argument of relativism, that you are arbitrarily stepping out of the process of evolution that you claim to believe in, and you're making these absolute statements, not recognizing that you're still in that process, it's ongoing, and that these things may change as you yourself develop and evolve further. So how can you do that? So these are, you know, I wouldn't say they're all super airtight arguments. But these are some of the arguments put forward against evolution. Now to conclude, this neo-Darwinian claim that random damage to DNA has been the driving force behind the emergence of all of this beautiful and complex life forms that we see in the world, it's on the face of it is absurd. It's absurd. And as Muslims, we recognize that this dunya, as the world of space, time, and matter, the material, is just a small picture. It's a small part of the picture. Because we also have the barzakh after death. We also have the akhirah after that. And our senses can only grasp the lowest realm which is alam al-shahada, the witnessed world, the world that we're in now, which is a small part, and it's the densest part. 
the lowest part. We don't perceive the alamul ghaib, the world of the unseen, which is actually much greater. It's impervious to our inquiries. So, this is just one piece of existence, right? The ulama, they say that, you know, when you go to sleep, you know, when you dream, when you're sleeping, you're not in the dream, it's so vivid. And then when you wake up, you know, your wakeful state is much more vivid than the dream once you wake up. When you were dreaming, it seemed so vivid, but then when you woke up, you recognize that distinction between wakefulness and sleep. Wakefulness seems more vivid than sleep when you're awake, right? So the ulama, they say that just as you have this distinction between sleep and wakefulness, when you die and go into the barzakh, it will feel like this life was the dream, and that has a stronger vividness than this dunya. And then when you go into the day of judgment and the hereafter, the abode of eternity, that the vividness of that realm is even sharper than the barzakh or the day of judgment. And those realms will appear like dreams. They'll seem like dreams. Just as your state of wakefulness now is a lot more vivid than when you wake up, when you have a dream. So we, there's, there's, there's more to this world. There's more to the, the alam than just this alam. Allah is Rabbul Alameen. Right? So, if we say, as the people of materialism say, that uh, existence is material, then maybe we could be reductionist and say that it all comes through random mutation. But if existence is not primarily materialistic, because we believe in the ruh, we believe in the unseen, that means we also believe nothing is random. Like everything is given perfect order and meaning. We don't believe in random mutation, right? Random mutation is a problem, theologically. It's false because Allah affirms that nothing is random in creation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that in, in Surah Baqarah, that He does not disdain to make a metaphor of a gnat. Inna Allah la yastahi an yadriba mathalan ma ba'udatan wa ma fawqaha. Allah does not disdain to strike a similitude of a mosquito or a gnat or something less than that. So what that ayah is suggesting is that even these most insignificant of things, these most paltry of things, a gnat, even they convey ma'ani, they convey meanings, and they serve a purpose. They fulfill a role in creation, right? Even things like that. In all of existence, from the smallest of organisms to the crown of existence, which is man, al-insan, all of them are ayat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they're all demonstrations of Allah's power and handiwork. So, having said all of this, to conclude, Muslims have to be brave. If you haven't learned anything at all this week, it should be you have to be brave. That there are going to be places and situations where you're going to have to say things and take positions that others are going to disagree with. And Muslims shouldn't be so cowardly or scared that they acquiesce to beliefs they don't really believe in just because of the so-called scientific consensus. Because science can say whatever. The scientific community 
which is completely discredited the past few years, to be honest. They can't talk about anything beyond the realm of the measurable. They can't say anything about the metaphysical or about questions of morality beyond their domain. So Muslims should not be materialist and think that everything has to be limited to the material domain and that all of our answers have to align with science. Right? We believe science is a beautiful tool and there's a process, but it's often abused. Right? You know how scientific papers work. Right? Scientific papers work as mechanisms for funding. Right? Theories develop, theories change, they get discarded. So we don't throw away our certainty for something that it itself changes over time. You should be brave and say, this is what I believe. I affirm that that's a possible thing, but there are some exceptions. There's some lines, some red lines I'm not going to cross. I'm not going to say that Adam evolved from a primate. If you want me to affirm that it's possible for other things, okay, sure. Theoretically, it's possible. There's no contradiction in affirming that. As long as we affirm the special creation of Adam, his wife, Hawa, and their offspring. So that is, inshallah, uh, hopefully a sufficient answer. There's actually some really good books and papers that tackle the ideas of evolution from an Islamic perspective. This is basically a summary of uh, some of those books and papers. If you want a deeper reading that actually goes into the science. As I said, it's never my intention to present the fossil record or look at DNA sequencing and look at the mathematics behind that and the probability. Uh, those things are compelling, but it's not my domain. So I will address it not from just the scientific perspective. I would address it from metaphysics, what is beyond science. That metaphysically, there's a belief in these things. And Allah Ta'ala speaks the truth. So anything that contradicts the words of Allah Ta'ala, you just wouldn't believe in, right? And there's no, for us as Muslims, there is no contradiction, there's no conflict, rather, between al-aql uh, wa-naql. There's no contradiction between uh, the uh, rationality as such and the divine text of Qur'an and Sunnah. There's no, there's no contradiction or conflict between uh, real science, actual observable data, sense data, and revelation. If there appears to be a contradiction, then someone's not understanding something. And someone has to reconcile. But the reconciliation is done, but there's no contradiction. There's no conflict. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lamu sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. So next week, inshallah. Next week, we have our, actually, I think, you may have to skip next week. My 16th anniversary. <laughs> yeah. Inshallah. For, for a marriage evolving in khair ala khair wa nur ala nur, inshallah. So I might, have to, I might take it off. I, I didn't want to, but some of the other classes stretched on longer than I wanted to. Um, so, at any rate, so the next class will be about the LGBT stuff. And have a lot of slides for you, a lot of resources, stuff like that. That'll be an important one, because that's a, a hot topic. And then after that, inshallah, we're going to conclude with uh, a, a small discussion on something that could potentially be fardain, and that is, how do we give advice to people 
How do we correct people? How do we can command the good and forbid the evil? How do we give da'wah to people? Right? Because that, that is a communal obligation and it could, can be a personal obligation. So we should know a little bit about those things because as we learn the fardain, we're also we're not just enriching our own knowledge. We're also putting ourselves in a position, once you know these things, you're now putting yourself in a position where you can assist others, where you can advise others, where you can teach your loved ones, teach your friends, inform them of things and benefit them. So there's a process to that. There's, a, there's an etiquette. You can't just, you know, you can't just throw all of the slides of the Fardine course into their lap and say, get it. There's a process to correcting people, to advising people. Inshallah, we'll talk about that and da'wah uh, as, as an obligation. And that'll be our concluding class, inshallah. After that, we'll have an announcement about a day to come for just a comprehensive review. Just kind of go over how we can do a, a, a written exam as well as an oral exam. And then we'll set a time to do that you know, in the weeks to come. And then inshallah, I'll also announce what we're going to do after the Fardain class is over. Um, that is, maybe I'll, I'll hold on to that for now. Any questions before we leave? Right. If you have a, a bucket of ink and you have 20,000 tons of paper and you launch both of them into space and they, they all land with a 20,000 page English masterpiece in literature. Uh, is that is that rationally possible or rationally impossible? It's actually the, you mean the mind can conceive of it, which means is this is a prob, the, the tiniest probability. So remember when we talk about possibilities and possibilities, rationally speaking, and right that which the mind cannot conceive of it ever happening. The mind can conceive of it, so it's not rationally impossible, but عادةً, you know, empirically speaking, not going to happen, right? But could, right? So they do use that kind of argument, but it's not airtight because it's still rationally possible, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the firing of the neurons. Okay, where did the first firing start? When, when was that? You know, it becomes circular. It becomes dawr, right? But... Yeah, I mean, they use the word theory a little bit differently in, in the scientific community than how we would use it in everyday usage, but... But, I, you know, my, my argument against evolution, I would just, even without any of this stuff, I would say 
evolution, okay, we're talking about a scientific theory. Okay, we're in the realm of science, aren't we? Uh, science deals with what? It deals with the observable. Ada, right? What is, what is empirical? Okay, I don't believe that it's been properly observed. You claim the fossil record demonstrates, you know, you're, you're back projecting an observation through the fossil record. What if I just say it's all fake? I don't believe it. Like, you don't, you don't give me yaqeen through that. So, okay, I wasn't there to see it, so I don't believe it. And I have no reason to believe it. You know, put me, you know, put me in the middle of, of, of Texas at the Creationist Museum. And, you know, I probably have more in common with them. I have no problem with saying it's all false. I also have no problem with saying it's possible as long as the Quranic certainty is affirmed that Adam and Eve are special creations and they're not in this process. I have, I have nothing to gain from negating it or affirming it. It doesn't make much of a difference for me. What I do reject is, are, are, the, theor- are the ideas that emerge from the theory of evolution. So evolutionary psychology. Evolutionary psychology is such a mess. I just reject it. Right? What, you know, I have to explain human behavior by looking at monkeys and primates and just saying, oh, you know, this is how we, you know, we do it. You know, the display of, display of higher value, you know, uh, maximizing the you know, possibility of mating and perpetuating the species. And that's why you get sad when you don't have enough this or that. That's why you're depressed because of this and that. I don't believe it. I, don't, I reject it. Because we have a ruh. A ruh isn't through some process of evolution. We have a paradigm that is outside of the limited physical paradigm of just matter. We believe in the ruh. We believe in the ghaib. We believe in angels and jinn. Things that scientists can't measure. And because scientists tend to have that reductionist belief, if you can't be measured, then they don't believe it. Now, not all scientists are like, scientists are like us. Some scientists are believers in God, and they believe in the unseen, but they recognize the limits of science in that regard. Yeah. Any questions? Yeah. What's that? Yeah, different states have different policies. Yeah. Yeah. So your question is about the teacher, whether the teacher is allowed to teach it without Presenting the counter points. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so there's. I don't, you know, if a person is living in a Muslim country. And they are a teacher. If it's required for them to teach evolution, the question is, are they allowed to present the alternative viewpoint? 
if they are allowed to present the alternative viewpoint, or if they can do it and get away with it, they can teach what it is. You know, this is what people are saying. This is a claim. So let's dissect this claim. Let's interrogate it. Let's present counter viewpoints. Let me give you what would be acceptable and unacceptable from the Islamic paradigm. If they can do that, then sure, they can teach it because it is a kind of knowledge. It's a theory out there, and they're going to hear it elsewhere. It's better to hear it and get it explained properly. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. If the persons can't do that, you know, this is a difficult situation because they're being asked to teach something that if it's taught in a way that rejects the unique creation of Adam, they're being taught to teach something contradictory to the Qur'an, at least in that aspect. That's a, that's a problem. And they're not under duress to, to teach something that will be blasphemous. So, yeah. Okay, inshallah. Zakallah khair.